Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Beloved, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew. And as you're turning to Matthew 28, verse 16, Matthew 28, verse 16. I want to welcome the rest of our church family worshiping in the Family Life Center right now. I want to welcome you into this conversation and into this time of study and encourage you to turn also in your Bibles or on your devices um, to Matthew 28, verse 16. Listen to these words as they come to us from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The reading of the sacred word. It's reliable, and it can be trusted. Let's offer a word of prayer. God, in this moment of worship, when you have our attention, we confess to you that it's rare. We, your worshipers, confess to you that it's rare that you would have our full attention because we have been living at such a pace and in a, a rhythm in a world that seems to pull our attention in a hundred different directions, even in this very moment. We've gathered onto this campus, Lord, and we have come from so many experiences that it's very difficult to even just be present. Many of us are mindful of some things that have already taken place. Many of us are anxious about things that have not yet taken place. Will you, for the next few moments, through your spirit, show us how to do just this? Just this. Just this moment, just this text, just this study, just this gathering of your people so that we might experience something that we could very well miss. Show us how to do just this. And transform us, Lord, so that when we leave this place, we are, well, we're, we're different. And we're 
capable of creating and mending a world that you had in mind. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the Lord of all life. Amen. Amen. So, friends, today we continue in our study, Semper Reformanda, as we have been talking about the church as an ever-changing, always uh, reforming body. And we began this conversation two weeks ago with a special guest, Martin Luther, came from across the ages to set the platform for us. Last week, we covered a lot of history. In fact, I'm going to encourage you that if you missed last Sunday's sermon, I really want you to go online and watch it because it sets a foundation for some of the things that we're talking about today and beyond. The gist of this conversation that we're having, the gist of this sermon series is this. The church is always reforming. And the reason it's always reforming is because the world is always changing and when the world has shifted in history, when for whatever number of cultural or geopolitical or social reasons, when the world has shifted, the church has been compelled in those seasons to have to shift with it, to somehow have to readjust the interpretive lens through which we see life so that we might view and might do our lives accordingly despite all the changes that are happening around us. And last week, we set this conversation off by saying that an Episcopal bishop by the name of Mark Dyer once put it in, in a metaphor we can all understand. He said, look, the world is always changing and always has been changing, but so has the church. He says, if you want to understand the changes that are happening to us right now at the dawn of this 21st century you have to kind of understand that just about every 500 years or so, the church gets together and throws a big rummage sale. And it decides together, through the discernment of the Holy Spirit, what are the things that need to be relinquished? What are the things that no longer are helpful in the proclamation of the gospel? And what are the things that we hold on to? What are those elements that we want to retain for the rest of the next foreseeable future? And this is true. Last week we traced our history. We surveyed that if you go back 500 years from today, well, you hit the Great Reformation. If you move 500 years back before that, you hit the Great Schism. 500 years before that, you hit, uh, well, the Council of Chalcedon, the fall of Rome, the rise of Gregory the Great. 500 years before that, you hit the turn of the ages where the calendar shifts and all the ages, what we refer to as the great transformation unfolds. You move 500 years before that and you're smack in the middle of the Babylonian captivity. If you move 500 years before that, it's the rise of the Davidic dynasty. No matter where you stop at each of these 500 year intervals, and this is why I recommend you watch last week's sermon. We talked about a lot of that last week. No matter where you stop throughout history, the world jilted, it shifted, it moved. But it required that the church do something about it. It required that the church, which had been operating in a particular kind of way, interpreting the world through a particular set of lenses, it meant that they then would have to decide, how do we see the world now? And how do we live in such a way that the church actually matters for the next uh, 500 years? 
And I cannot tell you how excited I am that you and I get to live at a time like this because it means that we get to experience what some are calling the great emergence. Uh, we get to experience being a part of making some decisions through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the discernment of the Spirit. We get to decide over the next uh, few hundred years, what do we jettison and what do we hold on to? in this great rummage sale that is underway. And I suggest that there are some things that we have to put a big sticker on that says, for sale, don't need it anymore, take it away, if the church is to survive. And there are some things uh, that frankly are worth holding on to. But before we get into a long list of what those things could be, I have to give you one more metaphor, kind of an image to carry us through. Do you remember a few months ago in a series I think that we called Morph, we talked about how everything's always changing. Everything's always under renovation. In that series, I shared with you some work that had been done by Rob Bell who points out some things that happened to us biologically. Do you remember he said that, you know what, we lose on average about 50 to 150 strands of hair a day. Yeah, it's like, uh, come on, come on. Some of us long for having 50 to 150 strands of hair, but we lose about 150 strands of hair a day. Not only that, we lose about 10 billion flakes of skin each day. 10 billion flakes of skin each day, which means that over the course of 28 days, you have regenerated your entire layer of skin. That means every 28 days you have a completely new skin. Do you know that we regenerate our cells at such a rate that it just boggles the mind? You, before this sentence is complete, before I finish making this sentence complete, you will have lost 25 million cells in your body. 25 million cells will have died. May they rest in peace. But don't worry about it, because before bedtime tonight, you will gain in their place 400 billion more. Which means that with that kind of rate of regeneration, the shedding of skin, the, the loss of cells, the regaining of new cells, every seven to nine years, you have a completely different body. All of your skins and muscle and bones and sinew, everything that makes up your entire constitution every seven to nine years has so died and been reborn in you that you are an entirely different person every seven to nine years. And here's the greatest mystery of all. Something still remembers whether you're right-handed or left-handed. Something in you, despite every cell being regenerated and, 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 and replaced every seven to nine years, something in you remembers what your favorite color is. And if you like the taste and texture of avocado, because this is what bodies do. This is what bodies do in order to keep on being a body, in order to keep on being alive. And in the New Testament, the greatest and most profound metaphor that is given to us to describe the church 
is that we are the body of Christ. Which means there absolutely must be rhythmic, seasonal um, shedding of skin. There must be times in our in our journey when we lose cells and regain them. It's what we call the Paschal mystery, which is that the things that die in Christ, they don't stay dead long. But there is a rising up of something new. This is how the body keeps on living. This is why the great hymn writer Fred Pratt Green penned a hymn that we don't sing in many churches anymore. It's called um, The Church of Christ in Every Age. And, and the line that really captures my soul goes something like this. The church of Christ in every age, beset by change, but spirit-led, must claim and test its heritage and keep on rising from the dead. Isn't that powerful? So this great rummage sale is nothing new. It's been happening for a long time. In order for the mystical body of Christ to keep on living, it means that we must courageously ask questions about what is it that is no longer helpful and how do we shed the things that keep us from living. And I want to suggest today, at the great rummage sale of this current era, there are several things that must go and several things that must stay. And we could go through a long list, and we're not going to do that. But I want to suggest just three. Three things that must go if the church is to live and thrive and be the body in this new current era in which we are living. Now, just a heads up and a disclaimer. This is a very presumptuous task. Be leery of anyone who ever stands up in front of you and says, I have the answers for what the church needs in order to survive. Be leery of any, whether they have the title of pastor or neighbor or friend. But together as we are discerning in this great rummage sale, I have some ideas, as I'm sure you do. And among my ideas of the things that I think Christ would have us relinquish, there are at least three. You ready? Number one. One thing that must go that deserves a big sticker that says for sale is our fear of losing control. Our fear of losing control. What we have already talked about is that we are living in a post-Christian era. That's a phrase that should not alarm us or, or make us upset. That phrase simply means that we're living at a time when the church is no longer the cultural, political, social center of, of the, the world like it once was. And as such, that can be the cause of some anxiety in people. We can look at some ground that we've lost, some power or influence that we have lost, and it could cause us to feel a little anxious about, well, where does this whole thing go? But I suggest we must relinquish our fear of losing control because there have been seasons when the church has been absolutely in control In fact, there have been seasons when the the church has been in charge. (laughs) And during those seasons, even when the church was like like the state religion, our faith was the weakest. When we have had the most power, we have had the weakest faith. 
Think about Constantine. When Constantine made uh, the church the, the, the imperial religion, it seemed like great news at first. Oh, good, no more persecution. That's great. That is good news. But then in time, laws were passed and mandates were sent. Edicts were made that not only made it illegal to persecute the Christians, but it made it lucrative to be a Christian. Laws were passed that made it easy to be a Christian, convenient to be. You couldn't own certain property if you weren't a Christian. You couldn't run for certain offices, political offices, if you weren't a Christian. And it all seemed to be really good news at first. Oh, finally, we've arrived at some level of influence. But the truth is, the more power, the more the institutional structures and infrastructures of the empire seem to help us out, the weaker our faith became in Christ. Because do you remember When you said yes to following, you said yes to following a guy who carries a cross on his back. And following means sacrifice, and sacrifice means risk and potential loss. This is why during the rise of the Constantinian synthesis, when when he raised up the church to such a high level of control, there were some among the church leaders who said, this is, no, this is not good. And they moved out into the desert, the desert fathers and mothers. They moved away from the large cities and they began to live together and practice certain spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices that kept them grounded so that their faith was not convenient, not easy, not comfortable, but that their faith was real. And they prayed and they fasted and they they read scriptures together And they sacrificed for one another. There have been times when, regardless the name of the empire, Constantine's empire, the Spanish empire, the British empire, when we have had great power, our faith has been at its weakest. Do you know where the faith is its strongest today in the world? Do you want to know where the church is just absolutely on fire right now in the world? I wish I could tell you it's Alpharetta, Georgia. I wish I could. If I were to say, where is it convenient to practice your faith, I would say Alpharetta, Georgia. Where do we give thanks to God for the freedoms in which we are able to practice our faith, I would say Alpharetta, Georgia, along with many of our neighbors. But do you know where the church is on fire in the world? Places like Iran, China. Places where there are very little to zero accommodations made for the church to be the church. And as a result, in that context of difficulty and oppression, they are able to reach down into that original call to follow the one who said, leave father and mother, brother and sister. If you want to be my follower, you must take up your cross and come. One of the things that we have to let go in this great rummage sale is the fear of losing control. Beloved, in this new emerging era, we will be strongest despite any accommodations made by any structures or governments outside. Be leery when your government says to you, we're going to help you out. You don't need priest or king 
to help you practice your faith in the risen one. So that's number one, one of the things that must go in this great rummage sale. Do you know what the second thing is I think needs to go in the great rummage sale of today? Tribalism. Tribalism. Tribalism simply means this. There is nothing more human, more natural to us as as people of our species than to form tribes. We gather together in clusters of people who are just like us. People who look like us and dress like us and think like us and vote like us and believe like us and play like us and talk like us. And then as soon as we establish our own kind of tribe... Well, then we're able to draw a line in the sand and say, well, now, this is us, but that's them. And and this is us, but that's them. And I want to say to you, I I don't know that, that there is any greater sin for which the church will be held accountable when we meet our Christ than the sin of tribalism. Because in John chapter 17, our Lord prayed the most beautiful passionate, lengthy, articulate prayer that you will ever read in all the pages of Scripture. He prayed to the Father, Father, make them one. Make them one like like you and I are one, just as you are in me and I am in you. Make them one so that they may be in us. And he paints the picture of this almost Edenic image of perfect unity among us. And do you know that when... Where you're sitting right now today, there are more than 39,000 known denominations in the world. 39,000 known denominations, and it's mostly Protestants' fault. Because the Protestants are the ones that say, we don't need a pope, we just need the Bible, and we know that we need our conscience. And that's great. That's perfectly true. That's who we are. If you have a Bible and a conscience, then the power of the Holy Spirit will help you interpret and you'll be fine. But here's the problem. Here's the rub with that. Glenn has a Bible and a conscience. And I have a Bible and a conscience. Bob, you have a Bible and a conscience. And we may agree with points number one through five on a long list of things, but points six, seven, and eight, if we disagree enough, somewhere along the way, one of us will say, I'm out. And that's exactly what has been happening for the last 500 years to the tune of 39,000 known denominations. We just keep dividing, keep dividing like an amoeba that just keeps on dividing. Some of you are following a story of a church in Tennessee, the First Baptist Church of Jefferson City, Tennessee. First Baptist Church of Jefferson City, Tennessee is the church that's on the campus of Carson Newman College where we graduated. It's also the church where my wife Laura and I were married. We came together as husband and wife at the First Baptist Church of Jefferson City, Tennessee. We love that church. We love the people in that church. We have friends, colleagues who are professors at the campus there who go to church there. It's a powerful church, a strong, healthy church. It's a CBF church like us. And about, well, several months ago, they hired a new pastor. And her name is Helen Degosia. And she's a strong and gifted woman. A powerful leader, strong and gifted leader in the church. Good news. That's something that you and I affirm unabashedly here at Johns Creek Baptist. But just about a week ago, the Tennessee Baptist Convention, of which they are also a part, booted them out of the convention. They were kicked out of the convention, not welcomed at their annual gathering, and rejected as 
members in good fellowship with that state organization. And you need to know that your pastor and your pastor's wife and your pastor's two sons signed a letter of support for the First Baptist Church of Jefferson City. And tomorrow, when we're making a college visit at Carson Newman, by the way, we're going to walk across the street, and I'm going to shake her hand, I'm going to look her in the face, and I'm going to say, you have sisters and brothers whom you've never met in Alpharetta, Georgia, and the members of Johns Creek Baptist Church are behind you, and we affirm you, and do not grow weary in well-doing, my sister. Yeah. <laughs> Beloved. We don't have time for tribalism. Because as we are splitting theological hairs, and, and, and I'll let you in if you agree to all these points, but you got to stay out if you're different than me on this particular theological point. If we're splitting hairs, the entire hurting and lost world is watching, and we are losing the credibility of our witness in the world. The thing that must go in the great rummage sale of this current era is tribalism. Not just internally, but you know, sometimes we have a habit of blurring our other tribes into this tribe. So we blur our faith with our partisan affiliation. We blur our faith with our cultural, racial, socio-political, socio-economic situation. And we assume that our tribe socioeconomically or our tribe politically or our tribe culturally is so distinct that it can't welcome others. But beloved, can I just tell you there is nothing, nothing, nothing more... Calm down. Nothing, nothing, nothing more antithetical to the gospel of Christ than tribalism because it was in Galatians that we read these words that there is no longer Jew nor Greek, there is no longer slave nor free, no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Beloved, the thing that, that causes me to put a, want to put a big sticker upon tribalism in this great rummage sale is that the church of the current era must find space in which it's okay for there to be no longer any Jew, Greek, male, female, Republican, Democrat, black, white, brown, because we recognize we are of one tribe with one chief. Amen. Yep. So that's number two. The third and final thought just for today of the things that need to go in this great rummage sale, not only the fear of losing control, not only tribalism, but we must also let go of this next one. Former ways of measuring success. For the longest time, churches that are successful were measured by a limited number of measuring tools. And they all made sense, really. If a church was growing, if a church was building new buildings, expanding its campus, if it was getting larger crowds, if the budget was swelling, well, then those are signs that the church is successful. And those are some signs that the church is successful but they're not the only signs. The reality, beloved, is that we, we measure those things as a byproduct of the most important thing that we're supposed to be measuring. The most important thing that we measure is transformed hearts and minds. Transformed hearts and minds. In other words, you won't be able to find on a ledger spreadsheet at the bottom line, you won't be able to find these things 
Are we more loving than we were this time last year? Are you more forgiving than you were two years ago? Are you more merciful? Are you more welcoming, hospitable? Are you more patient? Or is your fuse the same length it was a year ago? These are the things that we must focus on measuring. And you say, well, how in the world do you measure those things? There is no ruler. There is no algorithm. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. We've just forgotten it for a while. The algorithm is, tell me your story. The, the algorithm is, what has Christ done in your life? The algorithm is, tell somebody. The algorithm is, if Christ has transformed your mind and the way you think about things, if Christ has transformed your heart and suddenly you have a reason to get up in the morning and there's, there's hope and there's no longer shame or guilt or fear, tell somebody. It's the power of witness. It's the power of just saying, look, I don't know much about much, but I do know this. I was blind and now I see. That's all. You have more power. You have more power in your personal story than you could possibly fathom, and it doesn't have to be dramatic. It doesn't have to somehow fit on an after-school special. Hmm. But if Christ has affected some level of change in your heart, tell somebody. And, and, and the church of this current era, we need to begin learning how to measure that as a measurement of success. Rather than, are we building one more building and is our budget higher and are there more rear ends in the pews? Now, all those things are important. And you will never hear me back off of that call uh, to get your rear end in a pew <laughs> and to become more and more generous, right? But to what end? The church doesn't exist just to gather large crowds. The church is not here simply to raise big budgets and build beautiful buildings. The church is here so that we might affect change in the hearts of human beings and create a more lovely world. So those are some things that must go. Old ways of measuring success, tribalism, the fear of letting go. Yeah, Big stickers on all of them. Well, this past week, I got an email from a friend. His name is Charles DeWeese. Some of you know Charles DeWeese, uh, Charles and Mary Jane DeWeese. Charles, for about a decade, was the executive director of the Baptist History and Heritage Society. Lives in Alabama, and by the miracle of modern technology, he's, he's able to tune in and watch our services and connect with us online. Last week, I got an email after the sermon a lot of times I don't like the emails I get after sermons. <laughs> this one I did. And this one, uh, he said, you know, your conversation about rummage sale, it provoked a memory, and I want to tell you about it. He said, my, my daughter and son-in-law, along with their three children, my grandchildren, years ago were preparing to go and become missionaries in Uganda. And as they were preparing to go, they had to sell all their stuff. They sell all the furniture. They had a big sales event, a big rummage sale. And we went over to help them on the day of the sale. We got there, and everything was out in the yard, had been pulled out for sale. And at the end of the driveway, there was this large sofa. 
And it was the sofa that for years the, the dad and the three kids would wrestle on and would play on and laugh on and giggle on, right? And at the end, they were trying to sell it. It's at the end of the driveway. It's for sale. And he notices one of his grandkids midway through the, the, the sale it goes out and puts a sign on the front. And, and so out of curiosity, Charles goes out to see what the sign says. And in big letters, not for sale. <laughs> not for sale. There are some things that are too valuable mm, to relinquish, too valuable to let go. And that provoked a conversation between my friend Charles and I about what are the things that you let go and what are the things that you hang on to. And I just want to suggest to you three, among many, three things that in this rummage sale of the current era, you, we hold on to with the kung fu grip. We hold on to with both hands. Number one, the first thing we hold on to that is not for sale is the lordship of Jesus Christ. The lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. It was the first cry of the disciples. It was the first confession of faith in the first century. It's what we have all the baptismal candidates confess in the waters when we say, what is your confession of faith? And they say, uh, Jesus is Lord. And with that statement, it links them to their eldest and oldest ancient sisters and brothers in the faith. Yes, he's the Lord. And it means, it means this. I am saying yes to a life of daily yieldedness before the one who was sacrificed on my behalf. I, I say yes to a, day of, to, to a daily yieldedness to a way of life that is meant to look like the life of Jesus. Last week, I talked to you a little bit about how one of the most encouraging aspects of this new emergence that's coming is that the believers who are alive today, the young believers, the millennials and younger who are coming up, are experiencing a kind of passionate resurgence in a devotion to the teachings of Jesus. For them, there is a hunger and a thirst to go back to go back to an original yes to this invitation to follow a way of life that if you really take it seriously, if you really take the revolutionary teachings of Jesus seriously, they are liable to land you into some serious trouble. Because his way of life is not meant to go along with the stream of influence and power and domination. His way of life is meant to go in the opposite direction. That his way of life defines power different than the world defines power. His way of life defines winning different than the world defines winning. And to say yes to Christ is to say yes to the lordship, to the, to the yieldedness of this one who gets to call the shots. That's what Paul meant when he said to me. To live is, is Christ. That's what's meant in Galatians when we hear these words. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The one thing that we cannot let go of in this rummage sale is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah. The second thing 
that we cannot let go of, that is not for sale, is the Great Commission. Now, you may think that's kind of obvious to say. Sounds kind of nice. Fits nicely, you would expect the pastor to say, of course, the, the Great Commission. Yeah, we're on board with that. The Great Commission is the text that we read a minute ago. It reads a little something like this. Uh, Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Right? We, we've followed the Great, um, uh, the great Commission uh, for a long time. So the Great Commission, we don't let go of. It's not for sale. But here's what I mean by it. There have been seasons in the history of our faith, and we need to know this, when we have used that very mandate to go and make disciples of all nations, we've used that in such a way that, that we have coerced, we have dominated, we have oppressed and even displaced indigenous peoples with this mandate that, well, if the whole world is filled with lost pagans, then we have to go and turn them around. And sometimes in history, we have been guilty of coercing folks to a confession by the tip of the sword. And beloved, if you confess by coercion, it's no confession. It's just a desire to stay alive. Forced faith is not faith at all. And there have been ways in which we have abused this call. Now, you and I may not think that way, but sometimes the residue of that behavior in centuries past still remains in our assumptions about what the nations mean. What do you think of when you hear these words? Go and make disciples of all nations. Is the first thought in your mind, yes, because they're all just lost pagans unless we go. Is that your first thought? Because my thought first is more inclined to what Alan Roxburgh talks about. That God is already up to something in the lives of people with or without your permission. That in his book called Missional, Joining God in the Neighborhood, his assumption is this, no matter what your neighborhood is, if it's local or global, God is already passionately in love with the mortals on this planet to the degree that God is already up to something in their lives. So what does it mean to go and make disciples of them? Does it mean to go and make the assumption that they know nothing about the divine? Or does it mean we go and we sense where is it in their lives that God may be up to something? You know, I say this from time to time because it works. What do you think about the server who brings you food? I mean, at the restaurant where you go. My assumption is that you are all very kind. My, my assumption is, is that you, as Christians, are very big tippers. As a former server, my assumption is that you are very big tippers, that you go above and beyond the kind of service you got because this person is making the bare minimum and you're helping them out. That's my assumption, of course. But moving past my assumption is what do you think about them? I know you don't know them. Don't know their name, don't know their backstory. But what do you assume? Is it possible that without even knowing their name, the powerful presence of God's holy love is teeming within them. 
And whatever they're going through, whether it's something that's happy or something that is sad, whether it's something that is celebrated or something that is of great suffering, whatever they're going through, is it possible that you can look at them long enough to imagine God may be up to something so deep that you can't even see it? Is God's spirit within them? Because depending on what you say to that answer, it changes everything. Because if you can assume that the holy presence of God's divine image, which in which we were all born, if you could assume that God's divine image is alive in every mortal, even if you can't see it, then it changes how you approach them when we're hearing this call to go into the nations and baptize them, making them disciples, right? That means, that means our job is not to go and inform our job is to go and in a relationship with them, marvel and begin to point to ways where perhaps God is active and alive. This is why Roxburgh says, the world in this new era needs some poets. That the church is supposed to be a collection of poets, you and me, because poets are those persons who hear music and point to it. Poets are those persons who see beauty and art and point to it and say, no, that's good. Is it possible that you can look into the life of another person and hear the music and see the art and say, hey, there's something going on here. And I've used this story before because it's just so beautiful. It's provoked me recently. When we talk about Jane Fonda's testimony, Jane Fonda, who was an atheist for years and years and years, when she finally relented and became a Christian, someone from Newsweek asked her why, after all these years of criticizing the Christian faith, of practicing uh, as an atheist, why would you convert to this, this religion? And her words still stunned me. She says, because after all, after all this time, I eventually recognized that there was this, well, this humming, this reverence humming within me. When I hear Jesus say, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what I hear him saying is, go and be so vulnerable with the neighbor's locally and globally go and become known and be known and 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 welcome them into your life so much that you can actually begin to hear the humming of God's call in their life and point to it and say can you hear this this is what we call Jesus calling so one of the things that we hang on to that we don't let go of we hold on with both hands is not only the lordship of Jesus Christ but the Great Commission, and finally, there's one more. One more thing that we cannot let go of. We hold on like our lives depend on it because they do. Not for sale. Soul freedom. Soul freedom. What do I mean by soul freedom? I mean that you were born, you were created by God with a certain dignity of soul. You didn't put it there. You can't take it away. And in that soul, there is a freedom to know God and to be known by God and to engage in a relationship with God without the interference or even the help of a pastor or priest or king. Ever since the Reformation, we have honored this. We have sought to preserve this freedom, soul freedom. This religion is based on your freedom 
to accept God's love and your freedom to reject it. God will not make you love God if you don't. There's a song about that, kind of. So what do we do with this? The church of this current era must, must embrace with a renewed passion our historic Baptist championing of historic freedoms. Baptists have always been champions of freedom. Freedom uh, to interpret Scripture through the work of the Holy Spirit. Freedom as an autonomous church. Freedom to call our leaders as we choose, whether they are men or women. And freedom to, to interpret Scripture through the Holy Spirit as we do together in community. Religious freedom. Religious liberty. One of the most powerful freedoms that we have championed from our very beginning is religious freedom and the separation of church and state. Baptists have historically been champions of the separation of church and state, and that means, do we engage ourselves in public affairs? Absolutely. Are we fully present in the public market? Yes, absolutely. Are we engaged in the issues of the day? Absolutely. But we reserve and preserve historic freedoms of religion, not just for ourselves, but for even those who are not like us. The first Baptist church of America, the very first one, in Providence, Rhode Island, was established by Roger Williams. Roger Williams. Do you know why he went to Rhode Island? Because <laughs> he was in Massachusetts, and they didn't like Baptists because the state church of the Massachusetts Bay Colony saw his teachings as heretical. And there's no room for that because the state church, we're a Christian state, and, and, and that means Christian as we define it in the Puritan church. So therefore, Roger Williams and the Baptist, you're, there's no room for you here, and he goes to Rhode Island, and he establishes a little city called Providence. Do you know why he establishes Providence, Rhode Island? to be a safe harbor city, a city of refuge for all religious minorities who are rejected by other Christian-dominated states. So in Providence, Rhode Island, he established a safe sanctuary, not just for other Baptists, but for Jews and for Muslims, who at the time they called Turks, uh, for Native Americans and for atheists. And the reason? Because he understood something at the core that you and I understand. You can't be made to worship God. You must worship God freely or not at all. This is what George W. Truett meant when he said, God wants free worshipers and no other kind. The thing that we cannot let go of in this rummage sale is soul freedom. So there you have it. You got some stickers. And you got some things that need to go back in the garage. But what does it mean for you and me today? Because God is constantly reforming God's church. But God doesn't reform from the outside in. God doesn't reform with large mass groups. God reforms by having individual rummage sales. That means in the rummage sale of your own heart, you need to ask, what are the things in me that are cluttering my free and true faith? What things in my own rummage sale need to be relinquished? And what are the things that I must hold on to? Let's pray. God, in this time of prayer and decision, this time when we are reflecting upon 
the history and the future of your church. This time when we're thinking about our own faith and the things that must be held on to deeply and the things that perhaps you want us to relinquish. Our prayer is that you would compel faith out of somebody today. That you would call somebody to the deeper waters. Our prayer is that you would give the courage to somebody this day to respond, to yield their lives before you in greater ways than they ever have practiced before. Until the only thing that remains in us is what you desire to remain in us. So that we may be stewards of this church, this body of Christ that will not perish from the earth. But will live until you're coming again. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Christ, the Lord of life. Amen.